being an artist is a constant chase. Every, the, you get a job and it might last two months, which means you have to plan ahead. You have to always think about it. You have to make friends, but you, but most importantly, never sell out. Because once you sell your soul, you can never get it back. Welcome to Artist Works, where we explore the labor concepts and inspiration behind the art, illuminating and shaping our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Jean Sullivan, who's a playwright, director and actor with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which creates and produces theater presenting a working class analysis of the events that shape our society that exposes social and economic injustice and demands revolutionary change on behalf of working people. So Michael, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Evan. I'm very interested in the San Francisco Mime Troupe and all the great work that you have been producing with your team. But before we talk about the Mime Troupe, could you talk about your background and how you got interested in theater? Ah, yeah, it's a weird story. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in a, you know, very... Um... Uh, a radical family. My, my parents were always very political. In fact, the reason that they moved to San Francisco was they thought that this is where the revolution was going to start and they wanted to be at the epicenter of it. Uh, but I, And I ended up uh, uh, getting it. Neither of them were performers or into theater, actually pretty shy folk. But um, when I was in high school, there was someone, I had, a girl I had a crush on. And she was in a little theater company in her high school. And I had a bunch of friends in there, too. And I wanted to spend more time around her. And so I auditioned for the theater company. And I got in. And after a brief period of time, I ended up running the theater company. Um, just my personality. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, But I always had my eye. My father took me to see this theater company, the San Francisco Mime Troupe, when I was a teenager. And uh, I was wanted to be a history teacher at that point. And I went out and I was like, mime? Ew. And he's like, that's not that kind of mime. They don't do silent mime. So he took me to see uh, a show they were doing, uh, Fact Wino meets Armageddon Man, which is about, you know, um, kind of like, it was about propaganda and it was about uh, Reaganism and it was about all of these different issues, you know, foreign policy in Central America and working class issues. And it was done in this big cartoony style of musical comedy that was so intelligent and so much about affecting the audience. So activist. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So uh, much to my parents chagrin, I started going, <laughs> I hope like to be an actor. And, uh, and so, you know, like I said, I was in this theater company with the woman who I ended up marrying, who coincidentally is also the person who directed the Mime Troupe show this year, Valina Brown, uh, who's right over there. Um, and uh, uh, so I've, I've worked at all these different theater companies, uh, came to the Mime Troupe as an actor. After a few years, I started uh, becoming a uh, started writing for some of the shows. It's a contributing writer on some of the shows. And I started directing. And then when our resident playwright of 30 years retired, I ended up becoming resident playwright. And so I'm now I'm actor, writer, resident playwright and director with the Mime Troupe. And I work at theater companies around the country and my other work is done around the world. So what do you like doing the most? Do you like writing, directing? Do you like being on stage and performing? Uh... <sighs> That's always the question. It's so hard. I really, I each, whenever I'm doing only one of those things, I miss the other ones. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, writing is 
really interesting and and try and so much of it is about research that's what i do I read uh articles i read the news all the time i listen to interviews i do all this research which is really the reason that i write everything that i write is from all the research but if i'm not performing i feel like i'm stuck in a chair and if I'm stuck in a chair, then I'm and, and if I'm on stage, I'm like, what does this look like? I wish I was directing. I need to change, you know. <laughs> so it really is. And the Mime Troupe is one of the few companies because we're actually a theater company with members, as opposed to most companies are really production houses. The actors don't have a say. The Mime Troupe is a collective, you know. Uh, instead of having an artistic director, we're a collective, and people can say if they have enough experience doing anything they could say well i would like to direct next year and the company just baits it discusses it and says okay well we do trust this person enough to direct this is valina brown's first show directing even though she's been in a bunch of mind troop shows before um so it's uh, i'm extraordinarily fortunate that i'm in a theater company where i don't have to pick you know when i work other places i have to pick i'm like okay i submit a script and they produce it and direct it and but i can't do any of the other things right audition for shows and i'm only in them or directing them the mime troupe is a place where i can move around and do all of them so discussing the mime troupe and the background history and you've already already dispelled the myth that it's not a bunch of silent pantomime or anything like that (laughs) yeah but on the uh, wikipedia page it does go back that it started in 1959 until it then transitioned into this more collective management could you talk a bit about the history of the Mime Troupe? Sure. Yes. The company was started by uh, R.G. Davis in 1959. Kind of, it was like the R.G. Davis Mime uh, uh, class, essentially. He was doing this workshop. Uh, but this was during the, you know, 1959, just coming to 60. So the Civil Rights Movement had started, the Vietnam War um, information. It's like we already had soldiers over there, but people were just starting to get to know and understand the news and seeing being more critical of American foreign policy and American domestic policy. And so uh, Davis and the other members of the troop are like, how can we express these uh, uh, criticism of capitalism, a criticism of uh, uh, corporatism, a criticism of imperialism uh, and do it on stage in a way that no one else was. And so they started to do these shows. A lot of them were ancient shows, Greek shows, Renaissance shows that were dealing with the same issues in this big, grand style. Uh, And this, of course, was also in the days when more Americans knew that mime wasn't silent. It's related to pantomime. It's related to mimic. Silent mime is a type of mime. It just became more famous because it's non-political. You know, the big pantomiming is really from making fun of the aristocracy. It's a way to make fun of royalty. It's a way to make fun of and mock those in power. Or silent mime is just apolitical. It's just somebody walking against the wind. It's a very difficult style. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But it's not really known for inciting revolutionary change. <laughs> so so the troop... Um, you know, continue to evolve and grow. And and uh, uh, there was a famous uh, court case where the mime troupe was uh, accused of obscenity, not because they were doing anything particularly obscene, but they were talking about politics on stage, free in the parks. And so that was the only thing that they could get charged with. Uh, it's obscenity. And uh, eventually, though, the mime troupe um, beat the rap, won the case, and became even more famous. 
And then, like I said, eventually they became a collective because they realized that that's what they were preaching was collectivism. And that was in the early 70s. We've been a collective ever since. Um, and we, um, the company has gone, like I said, uh, toured around the country, but gone to you know Europe and Asia and uh, really toured the world, not just uh, to, to kind of activate the working class, but also to let people around the world know what the American working class is facing and how we're dealing with issues. I remember we were doing a show in Berlin at one point and people came up after the show and they said, we had no idea Americans thought this. Yeah. We, it was a crit criticism of um, corporate personhood. <laughs> the show is called 1600 Transylvania Avenue. <laughs> and it was about how corporations were uh, are legal people and they can't die. So the show uh, equated them with vampires. <laughs> they live off, they suck the wealth from the public, and they can't be killed. Vampires. Um, and so, but it was this critique of Bush and Cheney and, and capitalism. And the, the Berliners were just like, we had no idea that, that you guys even thought like this. Uh, that is, this is not what we get from American press. And so part of our job is also to let everybody around the world know we're not as bad and dumb as we might appear if they only see CNN International. Yeah. So I first came across your work through the Labor Radio Podcast Network doing some editing for Mime Troop Radio. So this is <laughs> during COVID, you couldn't get together on stage, but you produced these incredible radio plays and uh, Tales of Resistance was one of them. And it, it's many diff, different genres. And uh, could you talk a bit about the production of these radio plays that are just <laughs> in, incredibly professionally made and uh, super deep? And uh, I love them. Yeah, well, when the when the uh, pandemic hit and theaters around the country were shutting down and suddenly nobody could go anywhere. Um, we since we do most of our shows are free shows done outdoors in the parks and the parks around the country were closed also. And we had to pivot really quickly. And I'm a big fan of radio plays. Listen to old radio plays because there's a, a certain style there where you have to be able to tell a story very quickly, very, and, and paint a picture in somebody's mind. And that's the thing with radio plays is that the, what the actors look like, where the set is, what they're wearing, all of that happens inside of the listener's head. And it's like, here's something we can do. Uh, and it also get, would give us a chance to work with actors around the country, mind true veterans that had moved away from San Francisco that we could call them and say, do you want to do this? And so I started writing. I decided to write this big sweeping thing that had to do with all of these different issues, you know, with police brutality and, and uh, you know, tech innovation and mm -hmm. uh, COVID and all of these different things uh, and I set it was it was a big task that I set myself, which was to write four different series and then have them all come together and all the stories overlap in the end. But it was a lot of fun. And the tech, uh, the technology around it was very particular in that we couldn't get together to record. So everybody had to record in their homes. We would all get together using Zoom or Zencaster or these different things and rehearse. And then we would try to rehearse, try to record at the same time, everyone using their home equipment. And we would buy people equipment to make sure everybody had good stuff, all going to our engineer, Taylor Gonzalez. And then the director, Valina Brown or myself, 
on that sh- those shows with Vince and Daniel Savio, who's the uh, son of Mario Savio from the uh, Free Speech Movement. Uh, Daniel is our uh, composer lyricist. We would all get together um, again online and listen to the whole show, edit it, take a line from this take, a different line from that take, this thing, and put it all together and then release it just in time to have to start recording the next one so it was a it was hectic but we learned a huge amount and we had a great time doing it so that we after doing that we then moved on to doing our uh a red carol which is a radio version of of and the radical worker oriented version of a christmas carol uh which was a bigger production and we're running that every letting that go every year so that people can do it again for free so, because we want to make sure to get the word out using our particular style, and I know there are people who are like, "Wait a minute, mime on the radio? <laughs> it's like it's not that kind of mime." So, so that was just a lot of fun. The Red Carol. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, um, that's you wrote it, I believe, yeah. right? And you also play Bob Cratchit in mm-hmm. the play, and uh, the the overview of it is <laughs> at least in the introduction is that. Bob Cratchit tells Scrooge, you know, people always think this story is about you, but it ain't about you. It's about us. Uh, Could you just give a little summation of what the Red Carol is about? Well, when Dickens wrote Christmas Carol, the world was a very different place. I mean, specifically Europe was a very different place. There was no sense of of, uh, you know, public benefit of social justice. The rich were rich because they deserved to be rich and the poor deserved to be poor. And to give money to the poor was actually against the law in some places. The best, and you could be arrested just for being poor. And so Dickens writes a Christmas Carol, not as this fun entertainment, not as this thing. He kind of invents the idea of that kind of, we're all fellow humans, you know, and that what we do at that time of year you know, giving money to people, giving money to charities, giving money, helping other people who are less fortunate. Dickens invents that as a Christmas thing. Christmas was not much of a holiday in those days. He invents it as a time of giving and sharing, not about giving presents, but about taking care of your fellow human beings. And that part of the story got lost as it became more and more corporate. Big theaters, movies, all of this stuff that do the story. And they always make it about Scrooge. They always make it that, well, he's the most important thing. If Scrooge changes, the world will be a better place. And Dickens was going, no, you're all Scrooges. You know, it's not about him. And it was very focused on the workers. If you ever, most people have never read the book. They only have seen various bad film versions. Not all the versions are bad, but that's what we namely see. So I wanted to write one that was closer to what I felt Dickens intended, which was to activate the audience and the way to do that was to tell it through Dick, through uh, Cratchit's point of view. Say it's very close to the book, but the idea is it's a group of people basically are getting together, telling this story to this audience and going, this is what Christmas Carol is supposed to be. And I wanted to set it apart from the other carols, which is why it's called a red carol. And I put in all these labor songs. I used all of these traditional like IWW labor songs uh, and that many of them have the same tune as Christmas carols because that's what the IWW songwriters would do is they'd take traditional songs and they'd repurpose them as political tunes. So I did that in the play. 
And IWW is the industrial workers of the world. Yes, just in case one of the of most folks. radical of the 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 ones the the IWW were the folks who were saying we should all be in one big union, yeah. and everyone should be in the union. It shouldn't be uh, separated out between uh, skilled workers and unskilled workers. This it's like we're all in one big union. Yeah. So you are now back on stage, and yes. uh, one of the projects is back to the way things were. And it was written by yourself and uh, Marie, uh, Cartier, Marie Cartier, or, yeah, and uh, music and lyrics by Daniel Savio, and directed by Valina Brown as well. And uh, could you talk about this production? Well, when back when we did our Tales of the Resistance two, the radio show, the last episode, uh, Daniel and I talked about it last year. Was let's do a musical for the last episode, a radio musical. So we did, I wrote a short thing, Back to the Way Things Were, which is about two people, Ralph and Alice, uh, not named Cramden, but definitely based on the characters from The Honeymooners, who, after being stuck in their house with COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic for two years, and after years of Trump and uh, economic and all this, they just want to go out and get back to the way things were. They just want to go out and have a grown-up date. And so it's the that play was about the radio play was about them going out and experiencing all these different things that allowed that a win against their nostalgia. Like they had a certain sense of nostalgia back when Obama was president, back when Clinton was around before Trump and COVID, everything was great. And so I wanted to go, no. It wasn't great. Police brutality, climate change, you know, the 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 war, the class war that only one side has been fighting. All of these things aren't new. They didn't happen under Trump. They've been going on for all this time. We cannot relax and you don't want to go back. And so we wrote the uh, radio play and then when it and it did well. And then when it came around to summer, Daniel was like, why don't we just expand that? That issue hasn't gone away. And so I wrote in another character who's a minor character in that version, which was Zoe, who is their Allison Ralph's daughter. She represents the generation that has grown up since 9-11. The, the people who've grown up, uh, as she says in the play, she's never been able to get on an airplane without taking off her shoes because it's made clear to her since she was a child that somebody might kill her, you know, that her life has just been constant warfare economic downturn, uh, uh, you know, international uh, hearing about terrorism all the time, school shootings, and that generation of people, that's what they've grown up with. And those of us who didn't grow up in that time feel like, oh, well, these are, you remember the good old days? And she's like, my whole life has been horror. And and what what does that do to a child to know that they're constantly being told they might be murdered? Um, and so she's nihilistic about the future. And her parents, the quote unquote liberals, are nostalgic about some time in the past. And so we wanted to write a show to go, this is what we're dealing with now. People who are on either side deactivating themselves. Yeah. You know, they are being anti-activists because it's easier to give up or to think about the past. And we don't have time for that. Musical comedy. <laughs> <laughs> hope optimism yeah, these are right. the type of these are the type of things you have to have if you're going to go into a fight knowing you're going to get your ass kicked <laughs> yeah. like why get into it anyway you know right like, and even if you're going to get at your ass kicked but to know that you've kept the fight alive you kept the flame burning for the next fight and the next fight and the next fight with the hope that 
there is this march of progress if we continue fighting even right. though we we may get knocked down uh it, it may not even be for us if, you know can't win if you don't fight yeah and exactly. that's and 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 uh, and there, there are a lot of people that know that but there are a lot of people that are tired and people that feel like they've done their part and it's like actually your part is never over mm-hmm. and it's not work you know, to try to make the world a better place. It's not work to try to make sure that your children and grandchildren have a world that is that is vibrant and alive and where they can go outside. It is not work to do these things. This is the only, this is just a, a equivalent of being a human. Your job that you might do where they pay you, that's so that you can buy food and do watches and whatever. But the job of being a human is to make things better for the next generation. And so that's a job that you don't, you never quit, you just die eventually. And you are either making things better or you are making things worse because there is no stasis. There is no, I get to sit back and just wait, things will be about the same. No, nature doesn't work that way. Climate change doesn't work that way. The economy doesn't work that way. The class war doesn't work that way. Things are always happening. You can't sit still. And if you are a progressive, you have to always focus on progressivism. That is the only hope and chance for not just us, but also all of our fellow earthlings from earthworms to microbes. We are all earthlings, but we are the ones who can actually make things better for everything else. And to avoid burnout and to avoid the isolation is that's where art really does come yes. in and the, the performance aspect and the music and and that can bring us together and to to help provide some type of fuel to keep the fight going and yeah. uh and i i love i love everything that that you're doing and uh you're are you about to say something or no it's going to say that a lot yeah. of times uh, activist theater people will say oh aren't you just preaching to the converted and it's like well first of all we don't get to decide who's in the audience That's whoever shows up, converted or unconverted. But even if people in the audience on some essential level do agree with the overall philosophy of the show, we are giving them new tools, new information, inspiring them to stay in the fight. But also that when you get to go to see a show that's activist and political, you are in a self-selected community of the audience. You can look around and know that you're not alone in the way you think things should change in your attitudes about politics or sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, transphobia, all of these different issues, you can go, these people all agree with me. I am not isolated. I'm not as isolated as the conservatives would like me to believe I am. And the conservative press especially will always say, you shouldn't go to see something that's activist because you already agree with it. You should go see something different. It's like, why? I don't have time for that. Why should I go see stuff I hate? I'm going to see something that's going to make me feel better and give me hope and inspire me to go out and fight for change. And it's that beautiful solidarity that it brings. And a lot of people are looking at art and culture and and cultural productions and saying, well, you know, that's that's just a little extra fluff and things like that. But I do want to talk about the the essential nature and the fact that there are operations there are there is the business side of it the production side so as i understand i i went on the the webpage and you're doing these summer shows and you're providing them free but some of them on average are over $8,000 for a show $265,000 for a season it 
takes a lot of labor to actually <laughs> generate the these productions, both on the pre-production and the performance side, and then everything else that goes into rentals and marketing and and those type of things. So, w- could you talk a little bit about just the the business side of running this company? And it's it's also a collective too, which I yeah. find beautiful. That um, it it can be hard working with a lot of different voices and inputs, but at the same time, everyone is involved with the management of this process. Yeah, like I said, our collective essentially functions as the artistic director of the theater company. Everybody doesn't do everything. People make this mistake. They think, oh, it's a collective. Therefore, everybody writes, everybody directs. It's like, no, 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 no. We delegate. That is the way to do a collective. You delegate responsibilities. Otherwise, it's just arguing. And we're also a union company. So all of our actors are in the union, which could create a disparity of power. But what we decided to do years ago was everybody at the mind troupe gets paid the same amount of money, whether it's the newest band member who's going to come in and play saxophone this year or our general manager, who is also in the collective. Everybody gets paid the same amount. Uh, and it, that amount is set by how much the equity uh, union actors are getting. Uh, when it comes to financing, we don't go after corporate dough. Most theater companies are in that position. But how can you do a critique of banking if you've got Wells Fargo on your board? How can you, you know, talk about um, the oil industry and, and the unending horror and damage that they create if you're taking money from Exxon? Because those companies, those corporations will always say, well, we don't want to influence the art, but they do. They do by giving you money makes you self-edit. So the Mime Troop, because it's going to be about, uh, uh, across the board, capitalism, we uh, just don't take their money. We don't ask for it, you know, and uh, we'll ne- we don't do sponsorships of any sort. Uh, and we rely on foundations and rely on, like the NEA, which is tax money and money from cities and counties. And we ask for individual donations from uh, audience members after the show. Uh, and the thing is that people will say, hey, well, what if somebody gives you a lot of money? What are you going to do for them? It's like nothing. <laughs> no, they don't get their name on the building. No, they don't get we, we will thank them because we want to have money from people who aren't going to try to influence us, aren't going to say, hey, you know, my my kid wants to be a writer. Well, that's great for them. I hope they succeed and they could take a workshop. But no, we don't want and we don't want to allow the aristocracy, financial or cultural aristocracy to try to control us. So we rely on donations from around the country, especially with doing stuff on the radio, allowed audience members in Washington, D.C., in Boston and New York or wherever to hear the troop and then financially support us. And so we are continuing to move forward. This has been our model. And people go, well, how can you possibly exist like this? And it's like, you know what? Lehman Brothers isn't around anymore. You know, the average American corporation and business only lasts like four years. We've been here over 60. So we're doing something right. By being a theater of the people, we rely on the people and they have not let us down. So with the remaining time we have left, I do like to uh, share some insight into what you've learned as an artist over the many years that you've uh, been a professional actor, writer, playwright. And so if you had to offer some advice to some people who may be coming up, who may be interested in getting into theater, into acting, into writing, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from your own journey? I'd say the main things are avoid debt. 
<laughs> just as an artist, as a person, but especially as an artist, unless you have to get an MFA, unless you have to do something, just avoid debt. Live within your means. Don't pick up any weird uh, habits like smoking or <laughs> or going out with the fellow actors or dancers, or whoever, after every, that costs. Uh, I remember I used to teach a class and I was like, just having a coffee, just saying, I'm going to go and get uh, Starbucks every twice a day. That's at the end of the year. That's like a month rent. You have to really be frugal and practical at the same time. Uh, yeah, avoid debt. And you might want to avoid what everybody will tell you, which is you have to have a job to fall back on. Because if you have a job to fall back on, you might just fall back on that job. You know, you have to just go, I'm just throwing myself off a cliff and I'm going to try this for a while. And if it works, great. Being an artist is a constant chase. Every, the, you get a job and it might last two months, which means you have to plan ahead. You have to always think about it. You have to make friends, but you, but most importantly, never sell out because once you sell your soul, you can never get it back. You know, be, be diligent, uh, commit to the political side of the work that you're doing. Um, don't piss people off unless they deserve to be pissed off. And hopefully you will be able to, and don't try to be a star. If you focus on making a living as an actor or as an artist, it's easier. But if you try to focus on being a star, you might just burn out and be disappointed. So uh, anyway, that's what I tell in, in a nutshell, what I tell artists. So um, where do you see hope? And this is the final question with our time. Like where, where do you see hope that drives your inspiration uh, going forward? Uh, you've, uh, part of it is I just see hope in everything. Because you have to have hope. You have to know that no matter how bad things are today, tomorrow is going to happen, you know, and, and it is going to be full of hope. You're going to wake up and you're going to hope the sun rises. You're going to hope that you have a home. You're going to hope that whatever it is you do to, to, for a living still exists. So no matter how nihilistic you think you are, actually, you have all this hope. You're going to hope that the people you love are dead. So you have, you have hope even if you think you don't. And then all you're doing is piling other help on top of that because you have no choice. You have to. We are on a small planet on the thin rim of a small planet with this little bit of atmosphere. You know, as somebody said, we're all just eventual skeletons on a wet rock hurtling through a void. Um, so you might as well, A, have fun while you're here before your oblivion hits you. But also, you might as well have hope. It's better than the alternative. And hope is constant, you know, constantly seeing positive possibilities and recognizing people who, for whatever reason, have given up hope or are benefiting from hopelessness or trying to inspire hopelessness in you. And you have to shun them. You have to fight them. You have to always keep them out of your lives and point them out to others. Do not accept that hopelessness and giving power over to those psychopaths who run our society is the only choice we have. Fight them because being part of the fight is fun. Michael Gene Sullivan of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Evan.
Thank you.